Well, thank you, choir, and I pray it is well with your soul. And today we're going to talk about how to make it well with your soul. As you have not forgotten, I'm sure we are in a personal evangelism emphasis called Who's Your Mission? You see it every time you walk into the church, and today we put our display back on the platform. The orange balls are, each one represents one of the missions who has already come to Christ. And then the white balls represent those who we're still praying for. And your mission and some of mine, and I pray you have not let up in praying for these souls that Jesus loves, that you love, that Jesus died for, that you want to give your life for, to see them come to Jesus and be saved and uh, know the Lord. So keep on praying. I, I pray for uh, five missions along with their missionaries, that would be you, uh, daily. I lift them up to the Lord and ask God to do His work. So I want to just to encourage you, we cannot... Uh, relent on this. Uh, the times are risky to be lost. And it's time for people to come to be saved. So I want to reemphasize that today. And I invite you to turn in the Bible to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And we're going to look at verse 7. And we're going to answer a question. Why? Why? And before we do, we're going to be in some other scriptures, but keep your place in the Gospel of John, and uh, because we're going to end up there. And so while you're looking at the Gospel of John, I want to make mention of another wonderful text of scripture in Acts, the second chapter. This is the record, record of the birthday of the church. It was Pentecost. Uh, Jesus had ascended to the Father, and He had told His disciples, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And upon the day they were gathered together, the Holy Spirit did come. And Peter stood and preached the very first sermon of the church, the very first sermon of the church, and it was the gospel of Christ. All preaching, that is biblical preaching, whether it's Mike Barnett in 2023 down here in South Mississippi, or it was Peter on the day of Pentecost, or Paul on Mars Hill, or what have you, anywhere, anytime, all biblical preaching basically just has three points. And every sermon that's preached falls under one of these three points. And it is, number one, Christ crucified, that He died for our sins. Number two, it is Christ resurrected. And number three, it is Christ exalted. You say, well, preacher, if you preach on tithing, how in the world is that one of those three? Because when you tithe, you're obedient to the Christ who died for you and rose again, and you're exalting Him by your obedience. And so that just fits into everything. Every sermon from the Bible falls under one of those three categories. And so the outline of Peter's sermon that day was Jesus died for your sins, and He rose, rose again. And he is to be exalted. And Peter preached that sermon. And the Bible says in uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 37, Now when they heard this, all those people who heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. The Holy Spirit was working on their hearts. You know the Word of God never returns void. It always works on the heart. Every message, every Sunday school lesson, every Bible reading, every time you share it with somebody, every gospel track you give out when that scripture and the Word of God is read, it touches the heart. They were pricked in their heart, and they said unto the Peter and to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So that was the very first question ever asked of the church. 
What do we need to do in response to Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, and Christ exalted? What do we need to do? And then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Notice the question. What shall we do? Question mark. That was the question. That is a huge question. Because I want to tell you, there's a lot of things we need to do in response to the gospel of Christ. And he told him, you need to repent of your sin. You need to turn away from your life and the way you're living it, and you need to turn to Jesus Christ. That's what it means. To be saved, you have to turn from Jesus Christ, believing, or turn from the, your way to the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe the gospel. And then Peter said, after that, you need to be baptized, because you've received the forgiveness, the remission of sins. You get baptized because... You've been saved. Everywhere in Scripture, that's verified that you you go through and you follow through with baptism once you've believed and repented and have received the forgiveness of your sins from God. You are baptized. And that is a biblical ordinance that God tells us to do. Jesus said His last instructions, Go ye therefore into all the world, baptizing your converts, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the authority of Jesus Christ. And we baptize people. And that's why we we do what we do. And when somebody is baptized, the word means to immerse. Now, folks, back then they didn't have buildings that had baptistries in them like we do. You had a pool of water at the pool of Siloam, and uh, one man was baptized in in an oasis in the desert going toward Ethiopia. I mean, they baptize. I've baptized people on the beach. I've baptized people in swimming pools. Uh, the, the criteria for baptism, the biblical criteria, is several things. Number one, you have to be saved. You have to have already trusted Christ as your Savior. Baptism doesn't save you. You don't get baptized to be saved. You get baptized because you've been saved. And the second thing about it, it needs to be public. I've had people ask me, is there any way I can be baptized privately? And my answer is no. And then I thought, maybe my answer ought to be not by me, because some might do it. But then that wouldn't be baptism. So nobody can baptize you privately. It is your public profession of faith. Now, us Baptists used to think, well, when you walk the aisle and the preacher says, Here's uh, so-and-so coming to be saved. That's the public profession of faith. Oh, no. The biblical profession of faith is in the baptistry pool. And it, another criteria, it must be by immersion. Sprinkling and, and pouring are not biblical means of baptism. It must be by immersion. Because the word baptize means to dip, to immerse. We get our word Baptist from the word baptism, to dip. Now, you might say, well, how come we don't translate that word? The Greek word is baptizo. We just transliterate it. Well, would you want to be the first dip church? Huh? And so we take that word in its strict sense, and we baptize. Now, you've seen me do this before, and it's good to do it every now and then. Baptism is a picture. It's like painting a picture. And you see me do this. So here's the water in the baptistry, all right? See it flowing? And then here you are, the candidate, standing in the water. Now what do my hands make? It forms a cross. Just by standing in the water, you are saying, Jesus was crucified. And then when you go under the water, you're lowered into the pool. And then you come back out, right? And you're saying Jesus was resurrected. Does that sound like Peter's sermon? Crucified, buried, and risen. And risen, Romans 6 says, risen to walk the resurrected life in Christ Jesus. There's Christ exalted. 
So when you're baptized, you are painting a picture of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And you're also painting a picture of what, he, what happened to you. You were crucified. Your sins were nailed to the cross. You're buried and you're risen to walk as a new person. It's a picture that you portray. Your pastor is an artist. And you paint that picture in the baptistry. And it shows the world what you believe and what God has done in your life. And it is the very first act of obedience. It's the very first thing God would have you to do. Now, I won't be honest with you. I won't tell you this. You may not believe me. But if somebody got saved and they said, Preacher, I want to give a million dollars to the church. Can I do that now? I would say, well, you can. But the first thing you need to do is be baptized. Amen. Bring your checkbook to the baptistry. I want to tell you, it's the first thing God wants you to do. And then after that, as you read on in Acts 2, they formed a church, a local church, the church at Jerusalem. And baptistry, being baptized, is the entrance into membership of the local church. And so that's what Peter told them to do. And they did it. They did it. 3,000 of them did it. And they came to the Lord. There's another text in the book of Acts I want to look at, and that's Acts chapter 16, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Paul had been saved and baptized and was uh, serving the Lord and, and preaching the gospel around the world. And he went into the city of Philippi, and he preached Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, and Christ exalted. And instead of having a great response... He got a negative response, and they threw him and his partner Silas in jail. And they're in the jailhouse, and the inner chamber of the jailhouse. And at midnight, Paul and Silas, they start complaining. I imagine they said, well, if Caesar Trump was in office, we wouldn't be in here. No, they didn't start complaining they started singing the praises of God. And the other prisoners heard them. And then all of a sudden, God showed up in a miraculous way, and there was an earthquake. And the gates of the prison opened wide. And it was chaotic. And the jailer decided, I better kill myself, because if these prisoners are gone, I'm going to have to stand before the tribunal, and they're going to put me to death anyway. But... Just as he was about to draw that sword, Paul said, Hold it, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. We're here to help you. And then we have this great question, a second question. He says, and he brought them all out in verse 30 of Acts 16, says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now you might say, well, he was saying, what must I do to make sure I'm not executed for losing prisoners? But Paul didn't take it that way because Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And since you're a dad and you're influential, you will influence your family, and they too will come to Christ. And that man believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was saved. And I want to tell you what happened. He brought Paul and Silas home. Now, men, if you are a jailer, don't bring the prisoners home. I can imagine Mrs. Jailer getting a little upset about that. But the point is, she, they brought him home and he shared the gospel again and the whole family was saved. And that's what Paul said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Did you notice the two questions? One of them, what must I do? Well, you need to be saved, you need to be baptized, you need to form up with this church over here. That's what you need to do. What must I do? That's what you need to do. If you're not a Christian, you need to be saved today. You need to submit to believers' baptism, join First Baptist Church Ocean Springs, and start to grow. That's what you need to do. But the second question was, what must I do to be saved? He didn't answer him, be baptized. He didn't answer him, join the church. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in your house. Very particular questions. And so, what do you need to do? You need to be saved, and you need to submit to believers' baptism, and you need to get involved with the church, become a, a, a 
part of that church and grow and serve the Lord and, and lead others to Christ. That's what you need to do. But to be saved, you need to repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two questions. But this morning, the culture in which we live, there's a third question. There's a third question. And it is answered throughout the whole of Scripture. And we could spend some hours answering this question. But I'm going to give you three, three answers to this question. Today, more so than at any other time since I've been in the ministry, people are saying, why should I be saved? I know the gospel. I know what it says. I know if I were to say, what, how shall I get to heaven, it's gonna, what it's going to tell me. But why should I? Young people today, that's the question that they're asking. Why? Why, why should I be saved? Why is why the question today? Well, I think there's several reasons. First of all, life is very good for us. Life is easy right here. It really is. And life is easy for you. I mean, you're not going to go to bed starving tonight. You're not going to have missiles and bombs flying around your city. Times are good for us. Why do we need the Lord? It seems like everything's great and grand with us. And there's another reason. True faith, true faith, belief, is lacking today. The number one problem in America is not the border. It's not the transgender debate. It's not public schools. It's not the left. It's not the media. Those are all symptoms of the number one problem. The number one problem is lostness and unbelief. That's the number one problem. That could be your problem today. Faith is lacking. And we should not be surprised because we are living in the last days. Now let me share something with you about the last days. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says... At sundry times and in diverse times, uh, manners, God spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. He says, in Old Testament days, God spake through the prophets of God, our Old Testament. And then the writer of Hebrews says, but in these last days, he has spoken unto us by his Son." The one by whom he formed and shaped the worlds, all of creation. And so the Bible defines the last days as the period behind or the period during between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So the last days have been going on for over 2,000 years since Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the last days will end when Jesus returns. In Jewish thought, there were only two periods of time. There were before the Messiah and then the Messiah. And so the last days started at the birth of Jesus. And they continue to this day. Now, are we in the last of the last days? I hope we are. But for the sake of the gospel and our white ping pong ball, I hope God gives us more time so we can develop our boldness and we can pray and people will come to a knowledge of the truth. That's why he hasn't come back yet, according to Peter. He is patient, wanting all men to come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So what do we expect in these last days? Let me just read to you these things just real quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit speaks expressly in the latter times, the last days. Some shall depart from the faith, 
giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared as with a hot iron. And it goes on to describe some of the heretical teachings that will go on in the last days. That's been going on since Jesus came the first time. And it is progressively worse and worse as time marches on. Now it is so much worse because of the, the, the opportunity to Google anything you want. And so that's the last days. Second Timothy 3, it's real interesting. Paul is writing this to his protege, the young pastor Timothy. And he says, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetousness, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, those with no self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good. So, why should we believe is the big question, and, and times are good, and faith is lacking. When Jesus one day was preaching to his disciples, talking about his second coming, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And the answer is a rhetorical no. And so, another reason people are asking this question, according to Romans 1, there is an unhealthy view of sin now in our culture. Have you ever noticed here, it just seemed to all of a sudden just pour out of the bucket upon us that what was once sacred and good and holy is now disdained. And there's an unhealthy view not only of sin, but there's an unhealthy view of the glory, the holiness, and the character of God. A low view of God. Or perhaps people, maybe another question is why should I be saved, is, is perhaps people who are lost really do not see the difference that Jesus Christ makes in our lives. They, they don't see the joy of the Lord in us. They don't see a, a standard of life that is contrary to theirs. A philosophy of life. And, and maybe they don't see the difference that Jesus has made in your life and mine. And that's why they say, why should I become a Christian? You're no different than me. Perhaps the only difference is, is on Sunday morning you're in a building with a bunch of other people and I'm out with the seagulls and the fish or on the hunting stand or at home. I don't really see a difference that Jesus makes in you. So why in the world? Let me ask you, let me ask you a couple of questions that are age-old questions, all right? The old-time evangelists used to preach these questions. Number one, if it, were guilt, if it were against the law to be a Christian, how much evidence would be against you to be convicted? And then here's another question. If every Christian witnessed like you, if you were lost and not saved, if you were lost and you were a white ball, and every Christian witnessed like you witness, what would the chances be that you could be saved and hear the gospel? So they ask, why? Why should I be saved? Well, like I said, we could spend hours answering this questions from Genesis all the way through Revelation. We could give you point upon point of why somebody needs to be saved. But today I just want to give you three of them. Three reasons why you need to be saved. If you're not born again, three reasons. And they're found in the Gospel of John. And these are the things that the Holy Spirit will answer for you. So read with me John 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. Jesus is about to ascend to the Father. For if I go not away, the Comforter, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. That's such a wonderful verse of Scripture. You know, dear Christian, 
We do not need to despair about the presence of Jesus because He's here, the Holy Spirit. And He is our comforter, sent by Christ to dwell in us the very presence of God Himself. And so He said in verse 8, And when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So he's going to educate people concerning their sin, concerning the righteousness of God, and concerning the judgment of God. That's what the Holy Spirit teaches people who are lost. Those are the lessons he speaks to you. And perhaps right now he's saying these things to you. Why is this? Well, First of all, of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And so there's three reasons why you need to be saved. Why? Number one is because God is offended. You need to be saved because God is offended. He's offended by you. You have offended him. He, the Holy Spirit, convinces you of that, of sin. He, the Holy Spirit, will reprove the world of sin. You know, Romans 8 says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. What's on your mind? For to be fleshly or carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, the the mind that is not saved and renewed by Christ, the carnal mind, the lost man, is at enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So without being saved, God is offended at you. God counts you as an enemy. That's Romans 8, 5 and 8 right there. Can you imagine being God's enemy? But most lost people will say, well, I don't think, I'm not an enemy to God. I love God. I go to church once a week. I go to church uh, once a year. I I try to, I believe in God. You don't got it. Listen to this. It's not talking about how you feel about God. It's talking about how God feels about you. He says, you are my enemy. Ephesians 2.15 tells us what he did. Having an abolished in his flesh the enmity, Christ crucified. He went to the cross because he wanted to abolish the enmity of God. He wanted to make peace. Even the law of commandments that you've broken contained in ordinance. He wanted to form you into a new man, part of the church. So making peace that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, slaying the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you. Peace to you. And so that's why Jesus went to the cross. And God exercised the full force of his enmity against Christ on the cross. So you don't have to be his enemy. You see, James chapter 4 says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever there shall, shall be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so you need to be saved today because you are God's enemy. And he is offended at you. See, every sin, every sin, whether it's the big sins like David's adultery and murder that we've been talking about, or whether it's a lie or an ungrateful attitude like we read about in Romans 1 a while ago, or profanity or anything, is a sin against a holy God. David said this, he, 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 
He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered Uriah. And then when he was confronted with it, he said, Against thee, God only, have I sinned. And see, it is God who is offended at you and by you. You need to be saved. Because, folks, I want to tell you something. You can offend somebody on planet Earth down here. And it might wind up in a fist fight. You can offend somebody and they may be so passive they're just going to live with it or get over it and be past it. But God is perfectly holy and perfectly just. And He has decreed that the way He will be satisfied by anyone who offends Him is death. And the wages of sin is death. Separation from Him. God has every right to be that way because He's God and He's holy. And so you need to be saved because God is offended. And so quit trying to think how you have offended God. Just trust His word. You have offended Him. If there's ever been one moment in your life where you were not like Jesus Christ, you have offended God. So you need to be saved. You need to be reconciled to Him. You, you need to, to, to apologize to Him and, 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 and become His friend. Change that relationship you have with Him from enemy to friend, from judge to Savior. And you can. The second reason you need to be saved is because God is offering you salvation. Even the offended God. He's so much better than us. You know, we tend to hold grudges and say, well, I'm not going to try to do anything. I'm just going to let them go their own way. But God's not going to do that. He offers you reconciliation. And the Holy Spirit teaches you right now. He is teaching you and reproving you and seeking to correct you of the righteousness of God because He went to the Father and you see Him no more. He is offering the righteousness of Christ to you. The Holy Spirit. The Scriptures tell us of the goodness and righteousness of Jesus. Romans 10 says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, went about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And if anybody cares, and if anybody's thinking about it, That's what they usually try to do is establish their own righteousness. You may be here in this church building today because you're seeking to establish your own righteousness. That's what you're trying to do. And so you come to church. Or you give. Or you don't do some things. Or you do some things. And you're seeking to establish your own righteousness. You're you're like the Pharisees. At the end of the day, you're going to weigh it out. That, okay, i got to do some more good stuff, or i got to be better. And you, you, you seek to establish your own righteousness. Some people do that very actively. I know a lot of people who do that. You ask them, are you a Christian? Well, I do this, I do that, I do that. And they are trying, they're actively trying to establish their own right, as if they're going to impress God. But most people do it passively. They just don't think they're sinners. They just don't think of themselves as unrighteous. They compare themselves to others. They compare themselves to others. And they establish their own righteousness in a passive way. But the Bible says in Romans 10, as I read a while ago, that only Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. Only Jesus fulfilled and kept God's law perfectly. Only His righteousness is the righteousness that God will accept. He won't accept anybody else. He won't accept mine or yours. His righteousness. And so what He does, the offended God offers Christ or offers you the righteousness of Jesus. On the cross, He gave your sin to Jesus. And from the cross, he wants to give his righteousness 
to you. That's a wonderful trade. There's no other offer like that on the face of the earth. Nobody can offer that. Others, there's a whole bunch of isms out there that have tried. Well, this ism will help you turn over a new leaf and you can start being better. This ism will, will uh, give you some tools to, to live by. This ism will give you some core principles to live by. But only the offended God says, I will give you my son's righteousness. I will give you his righteousness. And when I look at you, I won't see any of your sin. I will only see his righteousness because I gave it to you. Well, God, that's a wonderful gift, but won't a little bit of my righteousness will do? No, because your righteousness is dirty and filthy to me. It may impress the warden at the prison, but it doesn't impress me. I will give you his righteousness, the only righteousness I accept. Wow. God offers that. That's why you should be saved. Why you need to be saved today because the offer is out there. Folks, I want to tell you, he is gracious. He does not have to offer it. But he has and he does. And he can stop the offer at any moment and still be gracious and good. What do you do? Well, Paul said, but what things, when I heard that, Paul says, but what things I counted that were gained to me, me being a Pharisee, me being solid with the law, he says, those I counted loss for Christ, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung. Paul says, it's dung, my righteousness is dung, that I may win Christ. And he says, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul says, I want to be found in him. Now, let me give you a little analogy. You know, God knows everything. I believe in the omniscience of God, so don't run with this illustration too far from where I'm talking about. But if God came looking for you, where would he find you? He came looking for Adam and found him under some fig leaves. He saw right through the fig leaves. If he came looking for you, what would he see? Would he see church membership? Yeah. But is that all? Paul said, when God comes looking for me, I want him to find me in Christ Jesus. God has offered that salvation. It's such a wonderful thing. God has offered that salvation. Two reasons. You need to be saved because God's offended you. You have offended God. Number two, you need to be saved because God is offering you forgiveness and reconciliation today. The third reason you need to be saved is because there is no other way of salvation. God has provided no other way of of salvation. As a matter of fact, Jesus talked to him about this in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. God, can you remove this cup? I, I, I don't want to drink the cup of taking on Barnett's sin. I, I don't want to do it. I, I don't want to take on Glenn Lowry's sin. I'd rather not. Because God from eternity... Beyond the reasoning of mere humanity, I have known perfect fellowship with you. I came to Bethlehem as a babe and, and had to grow again, grow up and, as a man. And, and, and God, I, I walked with you and I prayed with you and I fellowshiped with you. And I have never been, never have been at odds with you. I have never had you as an enemy. I have never been afflicted. By you, I have never, ever had a moment where I was not in sweet relationship and communion and fellowship with you. I don't want to be away from you, oh God. Why, why would 
That happened if there was another way. Jesus is talking to God about it. And then Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he went to the cross for you. And on the cross, as he was on the cross, he illustrated the righteousness of God. Can you imagine what he said? The the people nailed him to the cross. They were throwing things at him. They were spitting on him, ridiculing him, railing against him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He sold us God's offer. And then, at some point, God took your offense. He took that adultery you've committed. He took that lie you told. He, he took that, that disrespect you gave to your parents. He, he took that, that bad attitude, that, that sinful thought. He took that pornography. He took that lie. He took that cheating on your income tax. He, he took that breaking of the Lord's day. He took all of your sin and hurled it at the Lord Jesus Christ. And darkness permeated the sky because the Son of God became an enemy of God so the enemies of God could become the sons of God. And he hurled it at him. And then, then, Brother Larry, It is finished. And the daylight appeared again. You see, there's no other way. God is not a fickle enemy. He's not going to make deals with people. But He offers you the righteousness of His Son, but He is gracious but he is also just and he cannot be the God he claims to be in scripture and for eternity the unchanging God unless unless his enemies are crushed are defeated and that's what the cross is all about he became sin who knew no sin He became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He took it. That's why Christian people ought to be happy. And that's why we ought to sing, it is well with my soul. Because if you don't know Jesus, nothing's well with you. But if you know Jesus, it is well with you. You may just not realize it. You need to be saved because there's no other salvation offered by God. There's no, absolutely no other way. He says, this is how I take care of the judgment of your sin. This is how I do it. I did it on the cross. In this, John wrote, was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent His only begotten Son. God sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. Herein is love, not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son. And so, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man, nobody comes to the Father but by me. It's the only way. There's no other way. You might have been trying other ways, and and the Holy Spirit's still speaking to you. Romans 3, whom God has set forth to be the propitiation, to satisfy God through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the forgiveness of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He can be just and the justifier of him that believes on Jesus. Let me give you one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. 
that talks about this only, no other way offer of God. And you, he's talking to me today, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, that's Jesus, having forgiving, forgiven you all trespasses, all trespasses, everything, having forgiven you all trespasses. And then it says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Folks, God, to be God, has taken and removed every single obstacle that keeps you from being saved, that keeps you from going to heaven, that keeps you from having a relationship with Him personally and fellowship with Him right now while we're on earth, that keeps you from the joy that only He can give, that keeps you from grasping His Scriptures to learn how to live a life that exalts Him, that keeps you from being a part of the body of Christ, His church, that, that keeps you from, from Him. He has dealt with it on the cross. He blotted out the rules that were written against you, the judgments that were written against you. He's blotted it out with His blood. He has nailed it to His cross. He has taken it out of the way except for one. There's one obstacle left. Just one. And it's your free will. It's your stubborn free will. Let me give you three things. Now listen to this. In the book of Acts, toward the end of the book of Acts, chapters 23 through 24, 25, Paul is arrested. Now listen to me. Don't be getting ready to go. I'm serious. Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. They, they, the Jews want to kill him because of the gospel. They're after him. It's tough. And a Roman centurion and his men rescue him. And they say, everything's going to calm down and we're going to bring him back tomorrow. And uh, everything will calm down. Then we'll hear all this matter. But during the night, some, some Jewish men, about 40 of them, took a, um, took, took a vow that when, when the centurion was bringing Paul back to, to be judged in the Jewish tribunal, that they were going to... They were gonna, attack and ambush him and kill him. And so um, a little boy warns the centurion, and the centurion decides to take him to Caesarea that night. And he goes to Caesarea. And in Caesarea, he's going to stand before three governors. And the first governor is a man by the name of Felix. And Paul does something that's remarkable. He shares his testimony of how he was saved and why he was saved. And Felix looks at him and says, I will hear you at a more convenient season. When it's a little more practical. Right now is not a good time for me, Paul. And so his stubborn will defers being saved. I'm going to defer it till later. Take note, dear friend. Do not, do not mess with the grace of God that way. Don't play with it. Well, in the meantime, another governor takes control, and his name is Festus. And Along come the big governor, the guy in charge of the whole region, all of the province, named Agrippa. He's a Herod, Agrippa. And Paul stands before Festus and Agrippa, and he shares his testimony, preaches Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, and Christ exalted. And Festus is very rude. You ever met a rude person? 
Festus is very rude. He interrupts Paul in the middle of his message and says, Paul, you're crazy. Much learning has made you mad. Really? Really? You're just crazy. And so Festus just denies the truth. He just says, it's not true. I don't believe it. And then Paul finishes out, and King Agrippa looks at him and says, Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. There's no record that any of these three men ever gave their lives to Jesus. They weren't urgent about why they need to be saved. I pray you are. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have an invitation. And we're going to invite you to come and be saved. You just walk down here and Cole, I'm going to be standing right, Cole's going to be standing right there. I'm going to be standing right there. And you just walk out of the pew and you come down and you say, Pastor, I want to be saved today. And we will show you how. Or... I want to open up that invitation to say, if you don't resist the flesh today, we're available any day. Aren't you glad you can be saved on a Monday? You know, I was saved on a Monday night. I was saved on a Monday night. You can be saved any day of the week. But I want to share something with you. Why not now? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Why not now? Young people, why not now? Why not now, senior adults? I'm a member of First Baptist Church. One of my greatest fears is that a member of First Baptist Church will die and go to a devil's hell under my ministry. You can come and be saved. We've had it happen before. Just quit that. I just don't understand you, dear person, who member of our church who's lost and you know it. Why in the world do you want the anxiety of having to come to church? What are you trying to, to say to God? I mean, you got us fooled, but you hadn't fooled God. Why don't you just come forward and say, I've been a church member here for many years, and I'm, I, I'm not saved. I'm lost. I'm not saved. Today's the day. Do it for the glory of God. We're trusting the Holy Spirit to do His work. Let's stand together. And let us bow.